Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 13. Judges 13. This evening we'll speak about the birth of one of the more prominent judges, that is Samson. Judges 13. I'm only going to read a few verses to begin. I'm going to begin, actually, at the end of the chapter, beginning in verses, verse 22 to the end. Hear now this, the word of the living God. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering. And a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtael. This is the word of the living God, and we say... Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord together. Our Father, we are grateful for your word that speaks to us in ways sometimes that we do not expect. I thank you for this community, this community that sings, and I get to sit up front and hear them sing. And what a joy that is. It's a joy to believe this, your word, and then it's a joy to hear others believe it and sing it. I pray that this evening we'll believe it all the more and that we'll revel in it and that we'll be better for having spent time with it. So work among us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I, I, did, I did note this morning, I, I came up here and I prayed this morning and it was as Jenny and I sit up here close, and it is loud, and it, it's a wonderful thing to, to be able to sit up, and then I just sat up here, and it's, it's not full tonight, but it is, you, it, it's a good singing church, and it's a wonderful gift, and it's, it, it just reminds you that this, this God that we serve, it's, it's not just my God, it's, it's your God, it's our God, we are a community of faith and when you hear brothers and sisters saying what you already believe, it, 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 in a way, it, it personalizes it, if you will, and it, 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 it really does minister to me. So I commend you for it. I encourage you uh, all the more to do it. Um, our God is indeed a personal God, and we've been in the book of Judges, and in some ways he's been, if you will, distant at least compared to other books. It doesn't appear sometimes uh, that he's working because the people are, are doing uh, so much bad. But throughout the book, I think we've seen that God continues to intervene and, and minister to his people, to send deliverers, to save them once again from their own evil and the own trouble that they get themselves into. 
God loves this people. But I want to show you this evening really two observations. And there's an observation that the people of Israel in this chapter, they are a helpless people. That's one observation. And the second observation is going to be that we will observe God's mercy. So really I have those two observations, and then I have three pictures of each. So there's three pictures of how the people of Israel are helpless, and then there's three pictures of God's mercy. Three pictures of their helplessness, and three pictures of God's mercy or intervention. So let's begin uh, this evening. I'm going to begin in verse one, our first heading is the people of Israel are a helpless people. The first way we see that is that they are conquered by their enemy. We know they're helpless because they're conquered by their enemy. This is the first picture. So verse 1 reads this way. Again, what's the first word? Does that, does that strike you? Again. We've been here before. The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The first word of the chapter, again. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So they're in captivity, and they've done it again. We've watched them fall into false worship before. They're succumbing to the, the Canaanite religion that surrounds them. And though God rescues them from their enemies, the people, usually a generation later, they fall again into idolatry, into sin. And we could say that the people of Israel are on a downward spiral. That's been the term that I've used. We could say, too, that our culture is on a downward spiral. I don't think any of you are going to dispute that. There are bright spots in our culture still yet. But any culture that endorses same-sex marriage, abortion, perverts justice in the ways that we've seen in recent years. It's a sick culture. It's a culture on the downward slope, if you will. There was a stereotype, and I think many of you have heard it, and old men would, would talk about how things are getting worse and worse and worse, and, and you're kind of like, okay, okay, we get it, we get it. But there's something to what they said, isn't it? Some of what they have said has proved to be right. It may have been up for debate a few years ago, perhaps a few decades ago, but not now. Church attendance is down. People are getting abortions as much as ever. People are now attempting to allow children to get hormone therapy, surgeries. It's downright dystopian in some ways. The list of our cultural sins, you could say, is too numerous to mention in detail. So now think about Israel in the time of the judges. They are on a downward trajectory because they are conforming to the culture around them. And this chapter presents us with a picture of where Israel is at. They have climbed down the stairs, and now we get to see that they're even further down than what they were just a chapter previous. It's noteworthy that they were ruled for 40 years. You know that word, 40 we see it often in the scripture. It's a length of time Israel wandered in the desert. It's almost like they're going backwards. Perhaps this number brings that to mind for you. But 40 is significant too because 
So many die and are born within a span of 40 years. Many were born into Philistine rule and never knew anything different. 40 is significant because it's the greatest amount of time yet in the book of Judges that the people of Israel are conquered and ruled by another people. So they are ruled by an enemy now for the longest time yet. So this is God showing us where Israel is standing on the staircase. They are making their way further down. So another picture, second picture of Israel's helplessness is this. There is a barren woman, a barren woman. We see this in verse 2. Samson's mother is barren. There was a certain man from Zorah, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have no children. The angel of the Lord tells her twice, You are barren, you have no children. And the author says it himself. So we hear it three times, actually. As if for effect, Sarah was barren. You remember that? Hannah. Elizabeth of the New Testament. Sarah laughed when she heard that she would conceive a child in her old age. Elizabeth, too, was barren, but God blessed them and met them. There's so many similarities here. There, Hannah and Elizabeth both gave birth to men who would become Nazarites. Manoah's wife, too, is barren. She and her husband are unable to produce a warrior or a judge. They do not think, surely, at this point in their life that they will play a pivotal role in advancing God's kingdom. How could they? And the barrenness of her womb, we might say, is like the barrenness of Israel. They are unable in their own strength to produce or conjure up a fighting spirit within themselves. They are dried up, if you will. They're not good soil bringing forth a harvest for generations to come. By all accounts, if their trajectory continues, they will shrivel down as a people, and they will die. Third picture of Israel's helplessness. There is no Savior to deliver God's people. Israel's under captivity 40 years, but even more noteworthy than 40 years is that Israel does not call out for deliverance. They seem to just be content living under Philistine rule. So the judges' cycle at this point is broken down, even more so than what we've seen previously. For much of this book, if you've been with us, we've noticed a pattern. And it's been obvious to us because it's been repeated. There were four movements in the pattern. You remember this. First, God's people sin. And then afterwards, God delivers them into the hand of their enemies. And then thirdly, the people grow tired of it. They grow tired of their oppression. And they call out to God to help them. And then the fourth movement is that God sends a deliverer. And in this chapter, we've reached a point, we're nearing the end. The people do not even cry out. In chapters 11 and 12, we saw something similar. The people, after being oppressed, 
did not cry out to God for help, but they did find someone in their midst to deliver them. That man was Jephthah. They may not have prayed to God, but at least they went looking for help. They at least went looking for a judge. But in this point, they are ruled by the Philistines, and they've settled into life with the Philistines. They do not even try to fight. They do not try to choose a man to fight on their behalf. They just coexist with their oppressors. They've settled into sin. How would this apply to you? How would this apply to us? They have taken a seat with the sinners. You remember Psalm 1? The man who is blessed walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And there's this, there's this trajectory of the sinner. First, they take counsel with the ungodly, and they're conversing with him. And then they mingle with the sinners. And then, Psalm 1 says, then they stand with the sinners. And they're congregating a little more, aren't they? And then eventually, they actually sit down with the sinners. Sit back. They're at table with the sinners. They've made their place with the sinners. They've settled into it. And that's what's happened to Israel in Judges 13. They've made their way, and now they're content to live like this. This is possible. It's possible even for the church. We can look around today for examples of this where people just get comfortable. And they settle into the ways of the world Can you relate to this period in biblical history? One of the dangers perhaps for you, for me, as we go through a book like this is that we can see this is just too far distant. It's judges. God is not sending us judges today, so how do we apply this? So do you have eyes to see how this book relates to our own time in history? We are indeed, as I mentioned, in the midst of a culture that's increasingly pagan, I'm encouraged, I think, by looking at the history of revival. Our country has experienced two great awakenings. The first one with Jonathan Edwards early on in our nation's founding. And then after some time, actually, after signing of the Declaration of Independence and the turn of the century, 1800s, the early 1800s, there's another great awakening And it's interesting timing. Why did God send another revival to America in the early 1800s? He's already sent one. Why would he send another? Are you tempted to to just think that God has, has, he he will not send revival to America again? Are are we content to just look at the, the... the culture, and see it crashing down and say, ah, there's no saving this. There's no bringing revival to this. It's just too far gone. And perhaps, as some are suggesting, a lot of Christians, a lot of prominent Christians even, suggesting that we, we tuck our tails, if you will, and head to the hills. There might be some wisdom in that. But the mission of the church has not changed. The mission of the church is to make disciples. Let us not lose our zeal for evangelism. Let us not lose our zeal to make disciples where we're at. 
Let us not cease to pray that people will get saved. Let us not cease to pray that God will send revival. That's how it came about the first two times in our country. And I say all of this because the picture in Israel is quite like what I'm describing. They are far gone. They are completely gone. They're not even crying out for help to God. They've settled into life. And they've gotten to a point where God has to completely intervene. He always does completely intervene. But the picture here is that no one is even crying out. No one is praying to God. It's just that one day, after 40 years of oppression by the Philistines, the angel of the Lord shows up, and he shows up to a barren woman and to her husband. The picture is desolate, yet God intervenes. And that's what this chapter is about. It's a picture of God's mercy. The fact that he sent an angel to that people is a sign of his mercy. So let's look at this now. This is our second heading. I have three points here. Three pictures of God's mercy. The first picture is the fact that God sent an angel to Israel. This is verses 3 to 5. Let me read some of this. An angel visits Israel in their distress. An angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. A messenger of God appears, and he announces that this woman will have a child who will save God's people from their slave masters. And it's Christmas time. Let me do this, right? Could I not turn this phrase ever so slightly that even our non-Christian neighbors may recognize it as a well-known New Testament Christmas time promise? How remarkably similar is that verse to Matthew 121? She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people, in this case, from their sins. God intervenes in a dark time because he cares. But this also shows that God is completely in control. A barren woman can do nothing of her own accord. A, a desolate people can do nothing of their own accord. No one can take credit in this case for raising up a strong man like Samson. So this is all about the glory of God. They cannot take any credit for their salvation. Without the intervention of God, this particular couple cannot even have children. They are a barren people. Verses 6 to 14, the angel announces to the woman that she will have a child, and she runs, and she tells her husband. And though all has been told to her, the angel appears again to the man and the woman. And this, too, is grace. The angel appears a second time. Verses 8 and 9, we read, Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent to us again teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. Don't take that for granted. 
He listens. He, he returns a second time. Manoah prays. Perhaps he has weak faith, like Gideon. But God answers him and confirms to him, yes, indeed, I appeared to your wife. Yes, indeed, she will have a son. No new details are added in the following verses. It's just that the angel shows up to confirm what was already said. That's grace. Sometimes God does that for us. Perhaps before taking the Lord's Supper, I know sometimes mothers with with small children, you have to exit, you may not hear all of the sermon, and you're, you, it's like you just want to be fed by the Lord, and you go back into the service and say, Lord, thank you that I'm here for the Lord's Supper. I missed the sermon, but give me grace through this, your Lord's Supper. God hears those sorts of prayers. Another picture we see in this chapter of God's grace, God's mercy, is that the people see God and yet they live. This is verses 15 to 23. And this is great grace. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. So Manoah wants to have a meal. This resembles what happened with Abraham and Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. Let that capture your attention. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing that is wonderful. Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord, and he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. He says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Another translation translation puts that verse this way, verse 18 The angel of the Lord said to him, you should not ask me my name because you cannot comprehend it. And this strikes us of a few other Old Testament stories. God is is so wonderful. And when he meets with people, the pre-incarnate Christ that is, and they want to know his name, he can't give them a name. His name is too wonderful You may remember when Jacob wrestled with the angel. Jacob wrestled with him and wrestled with him till daybreak. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the daybreaks. 
But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob wanted this blessing of God and he held on to the angel of God and said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? Jacob said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. And then Jacob said, tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. He just answers with a question. You cannot know my name. For he was wrestling with God himself. Or consider Moses. When Moses was about to appear before Pharaoh and the burning bush appeared, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you. Moses ends up saying to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, he said. Isn't that mysterious? I am who I am. And he said, thus, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. That's his name. He's the God of your fathers. But think about this. I read a moment ago, Matthew 121, and in the spirit of the season, we are no longer clouded in such mystery. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, I think, for Jacob to actually wrestle with God and to hold on to him or Moses to meet with God in the midst of a bush. But in all three of these cases, including here with Manoah, when they ask his name, he says, it's too wonderful for you to know my name. But in the New Testament, we get a name, don't we? Have you considered how wonderful it is that our Savior, humanly speaking at least, he has a name. What a privilege that is. His name, Jesus. You can call him that. And he would turn his head and he would look right back at you. And one day in the new heavens and the new earth, there will not be this mystery that Jacob experienced or Moses. Not in the same sense. Because Jesus, the God-man, came and he took upon human flesh, but not only did he take on human flesh, the scripture says he has a name, and his name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's a human name. That with human language, as frail as our language is, we can speak to him. That is utterly unique. Old Testament folks can't say it quite the same way. There are many titles of Jesus in the Old Testament, wonderful counselor, mighty God. But in the New Testament, the disciples are calling him Jesus. 
And we will too. And then this angel of God, who is a pre-incarnate Christ, by the way, skipped over that part. This angel of the Lord proves to be divine because he ascends into the flame. And you know, as well as I, that fire is associated with a divine presence, and no one can just ascend into the flame. And then the reaction of Manoah and his wife is that they fall down to the earth, and they worship. You're not supposed to worship an angel. And they say themselves, we have seen God, how shall we live? Or even more, the angel says to them, if you're going to, if you're going to, make an offering for me, you need to make sure that you make an offering to God himself. And now, Manoah and his wife are beginning to realize, who is this man who has appeared to us? This is no mere angel. This is the angel, the messenger. This is God himself. Third picture of God's mercy in this chapter is that God sends a deliverer. Last verse of the chapter, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. So Samson will be a type of deliverer for Israel. And he moves on Samson at an early age. His purpose is If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, we'll see his purpose. He shall deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And Lord willing, we'll read more and learn more about that in the coming weeks. For our purposes, consider how this passage reads much like the early chapters of Luke. Luke reads this way. If you look at verse 24... Read that and then listen to what I'm about to say from the Gospel of Luke. When they performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We're in the middle of the book of Judges, and it's a a lengthy book, but there is no chapter quite like this in all of the book. There are three chapters dedicated to Samson. Some of the judges get a few paragraphs. Some of the major judges get a whole chapter, but Samson gets three. And his nativity scene, because that's what this is, this nativity, this birth story, is a chapter long. And that's on purpose, because we want to see the allusions to Christ here. The child grew. That's what the New Testament says of Christ. Christ grew. Pastor Ryan spoke of this this morning. The child grew. He, he attained wisdom as he grew older under the household of his parents. Furthermore, Samson is a Nazarene. A Nazarene is someone dedicated, set apart for God, set apart, in this case, to deliver God's people And some may say, well, Samson's a Nazarene, and yeah, Christ is from Nazareth. But the scriptures actually say, well, he's from Nazareth, so that he will be called a Nazarene. Make of that what you will, but John Calvin, 
He makes a lot of it. He says of Matthew 2.23, which speaks of Jesus being a Nazarene, he says this, this verse has to do with Samson. You can't get any more clear than that, John Calvin. Who is called a deliverer, in so as he prefigured Christ. And the salvation which came by his hand and ministry was a shadowy prelude to the fullness of salvation which was exhibited to the world in the Son of God. Calvin goes on, anything good said about Samson in Scripture must be right to be transferred to Christ. He says Christ is the original exemplar and Samson is the inferior copy. And he goes on. So Jesus is called a Nazarene so that we pick up on these illusions. Samson is called a Nazarene so that we begin to get these birth stories so that when the time of Christ comes and we hear about Gabriel appearing before Mary, we, we need to recognize, if we're reading the Bible, perhaps those Jews reading it for the first time, when they're reading Luke 1, 2, 3, they should be saying to themselves, I've seen this somewhere before. And you remember when Jesus opened a few of the disciples' eyes on the way to Emmaus, their, their heads begin to recognize how the scriptures were connected with one another. So what are we to do in light of all of these truths? I think that question really is how are we to respond to wonder? Because that's what happened to Manoah and his wife at the end of this incident. And now for you and I, we're not in the time of Judges, but we're here today. And when we read the scriptures, I hope, at least on occasion, you have this similar experience where you see his name is wonderful. Now, how are we to respond? I'm going to give you three ways, very briefly. Think about how the way Moses responded. this is off. When Moses asked God's name, God told him, I am who I am. What did Moses go, for, go, go and do? He went and appeared before Pharaoh. He went and stood before his enemy, and he confronted Pharaoh and said, let my people go. So when God told Moses his name, Moses obeyed, and he stood before his enemy Second way we're to respond to this name, this wonder, is the way that Jacob did. Because remember, Jacob wrestled with God and he asked God for his name. And what did Jacob do after hearing? Well, Jacob went forward in obedience to God. And if you read that chapter, immediately after, he appears before Esau. He faced up to his enemy, if you will. And then thirdly, how do we respond to wonder? I think we bow down to the earth as Manoah and his wife did, and we worship at the feet of Christ. You were born into slaves. I'm sorry, you were born into sin, and we are all slaves of sin. 
And your slave master, of course, is Satan. And as Samson, as we'll see, as he frees his people from the hand of the Philistines, so does Christ free us from our sins by conquering, much like Samson does. Samson does it with strength, pure, physical, manly strength. Christ does it quite the opposite. He dies that we may live. God sent forth his son, one greater than Samson, and he frees us from our sin. And as we'll see, hopefully in a few weeks, as Samson dies and conquers his enemies, so will Christ. Let's pray to him. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word from Judges. I pray that we will make much of you in light of it. And I pray that you will conform us to the image of Christ. For there is no one quite like him, not even Samson. And I pray that we will face up to our enemies as a result of encountering you. And I pray that we will bow down and worship you in light of encountering you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.